This episode is brought to you by The Eating Expedition, hosting food-focused trips and experiences around the world. We take being a foodie up a notch. Farms, factories, food trucks, fine dining, and firsthand experiences guide our conversations with folks in the food world as we get a behind-the-scenes look into different food cultures and celebrate the connection that food provides. And we are headed back to Northern Italy. Grab your bestie, your mom, your partner, and join me, Morgan Sinclair, for a trip of a lifetime from September 25th to October 5th, 2023, as we experience the cuisine and food culture of Northern Italy, including Parma, Modena, Cinque Terre, Broth, and the Piedmont wine region. Head on over to theeatingexpedition.com for trip details and to sign up. Welcome to the Weight Inclusive Innovators Podcast. My name's Hannah Turnbull. And I'm Morgan Sinclair. We're two non-diet dietitians, entrepreneurs, and Enneagram 7s here to talk shop about the business side of things. From managing a team of clinicians, to building a cohesive brand, to figuring out how the heck to pay yourself, we get deep down in it talking about what it actually takes to start, run, and grow your weight inclusive business. The good and the messy. We know your degree didn't include any business classes, at least not any applicable to what you're doing now as an entrepreneur. This is why we are on a mission to bring business education to other weight-inclusive clinicians. Say sayonara to all the hours spent on Google and hello to information that is actually relevant. Let's dive into today's episode. What's up, Weight Inclusive Innovator fam? We are back. And today we're going to be chatting about hesitations around starting a group practice. But before we dive in, do a little check-in with Hannah. Hi, Hannah. Hello. What were your highs and lows of the week? Sometimes it's interesting to think about this now that we record on a Wednesday because I'm like, wait, the week's not over yet. I don't know. I don't know. Like my brain. Um, I think that my high is not business related, but I'm really excited that this weekend I get to go on a van trip and go down to Crested Butte and go skiing. So that's kind of getting me through the week of like, okay, I can check off of these tasks, get these things done, knowing I get to run away on Friday. My low would be something that I actually can't say on the podcast yet, but I will share later on in the next couple of weeks. So suspense, you know what it is, Morgan. I do. We'll hash it out later, but that's really weighing on me this week. I think we could summarize it up to having to have some tough conversations this week. Ooh, yes. Good, good illusion or alluding to without saying what it is. Yeah. I've been thinking about you all week, having to have those tough conversations. So, but we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll dive into it in a, in a later episode, but definitely a low, low this week. Yeah. What about you? What are your highs and lows? My high of the week is, uh, that even though I'm booked out until the end of March, I still have consistent discovery calls being scheduled, which feels really good. Because in the past two years, whenever I have like a full schedule for a few months, I like kind of get a little cocky of like, (laughs) I don't know if cocky is the right word, comfortable with the like full schedule that I like don't really think about discovery calls until I'm like done working. And I was like, oh shit, I don't have any clients on my schedule right now. (laughs) And I think I've gotten used to that pattern 
so being a little more hyper aware of it and still having people reach out, wanting to work together, um, that are also open to waiting to work with me, like feels really good. That's awesome. I don't know that I would say that that's cocky at all. And I, I like your reframe of comfortable. Cause I do think if you're in the swing of your work and you're just doing the thing, you do it until you arrive. And then you're like, Oh shit, now I need to replace that person. And mm-hmm. sounds like now you're having a bit more proactivity of I'm going to plan for this to happen and still know I need to do some of these calls while I'm working with people. And you've been crushing it with sending out your newsletters and getting in people's inboxes though. So I was going to tell you that today. I was literally going to add that on as a second high. I cannot take credit for all of that. I hired a copywriter because I realized, and I know I've talked about this on the pod before, sales emails are so uncomfortable for me. And I know that I have to have sales in order to be successful. And so I'm like working through that, but writing emails that were like salesy without wanting them to like feel super salesy. I hired someone to help me with that. Her name is Kendall. She runs the candid collective. She is incredible. Her, I literally open her emails and like two days later, I'll go back and look at the emails. I'm like, wait, did I write this or did she write this? (laughs) Honestly, I was thinking so good at nailing my voice. Mm-hmm. When I was reading through your newsletter and your emails, it totally does sound like you. And the only reason I knew it wasn't you is because you told us that you were having a copywriter do it. So good job, Kendall. Uh, we'll link your stuff in the show notes in case anybody else is itching for the same, same kind of need. Yep. She's incredible. She, she really, she, her like niche is introverted wallflowers, which like I am the exact opposite of that, but I know her personally. And so I've also spent enough time with her that she just, and she's, I mean, she's good regardless, but I think it was so seamless. Like there were no edits that I had for any of the emails she sent and she does give time for edits, but I was like, you know, me, like, you know, exactly how I talk you know, like my mannerisms translated into words and phrases and references and all of that. Um, and I actually, so she wrote, I brought her on to write sales emails for one-on-one design work and literally told her going into February, I was like, I don't need these emails. Are you open to writing other emails? Because like I'm booked. So like your, your writing worked. Uh, and so she actually wrote two emails for the eating expedition. So if you're on that newsletter, they are, they're just so good. I get like so giddy talking about them because her writing is just incredible. And I'm so freaking thankful for her and hands down one of the best investments in outsourcing that I've done in my business to date. That's so awesome. My brain is stuck on wallflower and I'm wondering what is a wallflower? Um, like what is the actual definition of a wallflower? And then what is the opposite of a wallflower? I don't actually know the definition of a wallflower. If I had to make a good assumption, it's kind of like, um, you know, like, like high school dances, you have like the people that are like doing their thing in the middle of the dance floor. And you have like the people that are kind of on the perimeter, just like observing the people on the perimeter, I think are like the wallflowers. Okay. I just Googled it. Okay. And Google it right. Pretty much a person who has no one to dance with or feels shy, awkward, or excluded at a party. Yeah. It's so sad. It is really Look sad. That. There's like there was the book The Perks of Being a Wallflower that came mm-hmm. out. So I think that's probably whenever it, it became pretty popular. Um, but yeah, I can't really relate to being a wallflower. I was definitely the girl like 
on the dance floor when I was 15 years old. So (laughs) I, first of all, when I think about the, the dance that I went to in seventh grade, which was my first dance dare dances, anybody, did you have those? dare is in like, don't do drugs dare. Yeah. Yeah. You had that in seventh grade. Yes. Ours was an elementary school, which is a little young for that. Don't you think? Um, now that I'm thinking about it, I might've actually been sixth grade, which I think is borderline middle school, elementary school. Anyway, I just have memories of me awkwardly dancing and wearing Bobby Jack clothes. Do you remember what that is with the little monkey? Oh, I, oh my God. I wore one of those t-shirts for my seventh grade birthday and it is to date the most embarrassing picture I have of myself strictly because of that (laughs) t-shirt. Okay. Morgan, please link that in the show notes. It's, um, I actually don't know if it was Bobby Jack, but it was like similar to that. I'll just describe it to you. I'm not linking that picture, but I'll describe it. (laughs) It was a hot pink short sleeve shirt and it had three little characters on it. And two of them were in, were just wearing underwear and one of them had their underwear on their head. And it said, (laughs) that alone is embarrassing, but it said, (laughs) you do things your way. I'll do them mine. Oh my God. Okay. Can we at least leak this pic into the accountability club? Cause I feel like they deserve to see it. Oh my God. It was so embarrassing, but yes, I do know that. <laughs> and I also love that memory for you of wearing that dancing at a dare dance. <laughs> yeah. It was like a cloth skirt, like the t-shirt material with a Bobby Jack monkey on it. And I thought it was so cool. It was like Navy blue. I'm pretty sure it might've been a skirt, and I just felt awesome. Love that. Love that <laughs> confidence boost. But also if I looked at that picture now, I'm sure I'd be fucking horrified. Okay. Well, you're going to have to find it and also put it in the accountability club. (laughs) Um, Also, if you all have pictures of you in Bobby Jack, please send it our way and make our life. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. So those are some, some, some solid highs this week. My low is that I am just stressed as I'll get out. I'm hosting the Houston eating disorder specialist conference next Saturday. The day this goes live, it'll have been two days ago, February 25th. Um, and it's just, it's so fun because I'm co-hosting it with Hannah Stefan, the other Hannah in my life. And it's great because whenever we do meetings, it's like getting to, it's similar to like this, where we just get to like be friends and hang out and talk and plan things together. It's great. But we have not hit the numbers that we want to hit. And so that just feels stressful, Uh, especially because last year our conference sold out like three weeks before the actual conference. Mm. Granted, it was a community conference last year. It's a professional conference this year. Oh, what's the difference? Oh, I guess for clinicians versus anyone in the community. Uh, yeah. And the community one is specific for, uh, folks who have an eating disorder, have recovered their support system and other clinicians wanting to just like dip their toe in eating disorders. Whereas the professional one does like way more of a deep dive and having that baseline knowledge of eating disorders is pretty important before going in. So that's just a little stressful and like, it's all going to be okay, but it's, it's, that feeling as you're approaching a big event that like you're in charge of just, there's just some, some extra nerves that come along with it. So 
holding that this week. And it's like, I'm like holding a lot of tension in my shoulders. And so like my, I went into a restorative yoga class last night and like, couldn't get comfortable because my shoulders hurt so bad because I'm like holding so much tension. Oof. I would be doing the same thing though. Putting on an event is high pressure. Um, especially when it's not where you want it to be. And thanks for being transparent about that. Cause that shit happens all the time. And also we're not going to share the numbers here, but the numbers are still really fucking awesome. So I'll just say that. They are. Um, but when, but when you have a goal or an expectation, it can be disappointing to not hit it. Yeah. Anyhow, all that to say, you ready to dive into today's episode? Let's do it. So today we are going to be talking about hesitations around starting a group practice. This stems from our group business coaching session that we had in the accountability club. And we just had a really great candid conversation around people's hesitations, fears, things that they were nervous about whenever they were thinking about expanding their solo practice into a group practice, hiring someone and continuing to grow that team. And so We are just going to carry bits and pieces of that conversation into today's episode because the fact that we spent a whole hour talking about it in the accountability club means that there are probably a lot of people that have these same thoughts. And so I obviously don't run a group practice. Hannah's gone through going from solo to group practice, and we're just going to have a nice candid conversation about it today. Am I in the hot seat again? I mean, you, I I feel like anything group practice related, like you are clearly more knowledgeable with your lived experience than I am, but I will, I will gladly contribute opinion (laughs) and then you can just call me out if uh, you're like, yeah, actually that's not how that works, Morgan. But I, I have worked with enough group practice owners in my branding, web design, marketing work that I, I definitely feel confident in contributing to pieces of this. So love it. Cool. The first thing that I want to say is a lot of folks who go into private practice assume their next step has to be group. And I just want to shut that down right now. If you never want to have a group practice, one, that's totally okay. And two, don't do it just because you quote unquote should, or you think you'll make more money, et cetera. Because the reality is if you don't like the work you're doing, you're not going to make more money. And also doing it just for money with how fucking hard it is, is not worth it to be honest. And so. I feel like group practice is a labor of love a lot of the time and the risk is high and the reward is also high. So I like to give that disclaimer. I've actually had a couple of people text me, message me, email me about how they listened to a previous group practice episode and it actually helped them realize group practice isn't for them, which I think is really good. And sometimes I think my job is to deter people from group practice because it's not for everyone and it's a lot of work. So that's my disclaimer. Um, if you want to have a group practice or you're curious and you have hesitancies and that's, what's holding you back of like, shoot, I want to work through these things because I want to have a group. Awesome. Love that energy too. I don't think it's that polarized as in, I have these fears. I don't want to do group practice or I feel like I should. And then the other side being fuck. Yeah, I'll do whatever. Let's go. I, I really think people go all along the spectrum What I'm hopeful is with this episode that it gives people more clarity if they are feeling these main themes that kept coming up in our group chat to 
help give them ease and allow them to take the next step. That's awesome. Or if it gives them clarity of actually, I don't know if I would want to do that. That's awesome too. Thanks for making that disclaimer. I was hoping you would add something like that in here. (laughs) Or sure. All right. The first fear hesitation thing that made people nervous was the fact that someone else was going to be relying on them emotionally, mm. financially, for their well-being. It's a lot of responsibility. Yes. I think that's a major one that comes up when I'm doing group practice coaching as well of what will this mean if somebody's dependent on me? And that's why I always talk about group practice. You have to want to be a leader. Group practice is not just to hire people, never interact with them, not support them. And just to be co-working, if you're doing something like that, get an office suite and have other practitioners rent from you. I think that's a way you can have community without the responsibility of their practices and still feel like a group. That's what I did when I was a solo practice. I rented from a therapy group practice. It was fucking awesome. And then I outgrew the space because I was hiring people. So there's ways to have community without having to take responsibility on. Again, it comes back to risk versus reward. If you hire the right people, if you can have good boundaries, if you lead your team and that fulfills you, you won't stay stuck in the, what does it mean for someone to be reliant on me or being afraid of that? You are also reliant on your team. And I think that's a pain point that people either don't know yet or are missing because Our group practices or even private practice, if you're solo, they are ecosystems where different parts are reliant on each other. I'm reliant on my team to do the client work, to do excellent care, and to, I mean, bottom line, it helps pay my salary, right? And so, and I'm responsible for getting them clients, creating an awesome workplace, giving them benefits, and making excellent company culture. So you're equally as reliant on other people for your well-being in group practice. As you were talking about that too, like, I think, you know, there is a difference between having someone be full-time for you and having, and wanting to give them benefits and all of that. But I think this, this also relates to like where I'm at of hiring someone part-time and bringing someone on to support have someone that I'm outsourcing things to, like they're also all part of the ecosystem. That's a really good point you bring up about hiring people other than clinicians as part of a practice in general. And you'll do that more with group practice too. Like you might have multiple admin, you might have an admin and a biller. And if you're a solo practitioner, there is still an element of when you outsource things like admin work, billing, financial, financial stuff, you have more of a one dimension of responsibility of I'm going to pay this person to do their job. And that's already worked into my expenses versus, and it's usually something part-time, right? Or contract versus having clinicians where they want to work for you full-time. And then you're like, oh, this is a whole different game. This is way more dimensional. So if you're having this thought, these fears around responsibility, I would just check in with yourself of do I want to be a leader? Do I want to diversify my work? Is there a sense of pride in providing for your team? And how can you lean into that and use that as motivation and fuel for your group practice? 
and go on the offense rather than be on the defense and let that hold you back because that feeling comes with a lot of things in life and we can tolerate hard feelings. Look at you using a sports analogy. Did I? I don't even remember what I said. Offense and defense. Oh, I use that actually a lot. <laughs> I'm like, what did I say? That's sports that, yeah, that's just worked into my brain, but cool. The second hesitation that you may be feeling is uh, being fearful of hiring someone that is in alignment with your values. And this is something that is so important in the branding work. So I think most people think of branding of like colors, fonts, logos, but understanding both your personal values as well as the values for your business is so crucial, especially before you start hiring folks, because you do want to hire someone in alignment with your values, because that person is now going to be representing you to some extent, uh, but really going to be representing your business as well. And you want to make sure that you are on the same page when it comes to how the business is going to be run, types of clients you're wanting to work with, and how you're wanting to show up in the community. Yeah. And that takes a lot of trust on all ends, right? It's trusting people to deliver, trusting referral sources to also like your clinician and refer clients to them. And this is where I always think about, and I'm glad you talked about branding is if you're going to be a group practice and your business is your name, change it, change it to something else, or else the referrals are going to keep going directly to you. And your clinician is not even going to have a chance to do the work in order to see if you can trust them. And it takes time to build trust, right? We can't know our whole teams ever, their inner workings in their brain. And what is the extent of weight inclusive work that they do? Like, do they truly understand it? Or are they going to say something fat phobic on accident because it's subconscious or something racist or like, that's a, that's a risk. Is there anything that you have in your interview or onboarding process related to values? We hit values hard in our interviews and we'll ask very direct questions of like, do you know what fat phobia is? Tell us about your own fat phobia. Do you understand that people have lived different lived experiences than you? Tell us about that. Um, we'll straightforward ask like, is social justice important to you? That's the number one value of ours. And so we really do use those questions to kind of vet people as much as we can in the beginning, right? Because people can say the right thing and then their actions don't follow. And then whenever we are having team meetings, connecting, we are implementing those pieces in our conversations and our learnings and professional development and so it would be really confusing if a clinician wasn't in alignment with them because I feel like maybe they wouldn't engage or they would be confused um, or just oblivious, but I don't think that would be the case. The third hesitation, fear, or nervous factor is fear of going back to burnout. And this is... Uh, can be something where, you know, it takes a while to build up a solo practice. You're feeling good. You feel like you're finally in the rhythm. And then adding on another team member is going to require shifts and adjustments. And that might 
throw you back into an alignment of work time, play time, work time, personal time, whatever that looks like. And it's a very valid fear and hesitation. Mm-hmm. Burnout, my old friends. I feel like I'm constantly in and out of burnout. So I'll, I'll be candid about that. And I've said that on the podcast before. And I, I don't think that is avoidable, to be honest, as a group practice owner, especially, or someone who is going into group practice. And that's part of why I do group practice coaching, because I want to be the person there to support the group practice owner when they're like, I'm fucking done. Like, this is hard. I X, Y, and Z is happening because all of that is normal. And when you're pushing the limits and finding the edge and scaling, you're going to fucking burn out. And so it's more of how do you have a place to talk about it? Think about the big picture and what you're working towards. Take a step back when you need to and outsource, change your role, reduce your caseload. That's why the number one thing I start with people is, is how committed to you to doing this are you so that you will take a pay cut for a second potentially to reduce your caseload to build somebody else up and eventually replace that revenue. But knowing if you're seeing 30 clients a week trying to hire somebody, you're going to burn out even faster. Yeah. there. I mean, the reality of it is that in order to, you're right, you are going to have to continuously like push that boundary and it, and it could mean going into burnout. I think knowing that that's a possibility is one thing. And there are also things that can be done in order to attempt to avoid it or hopefully slow that process down. And that just looks like being really honest about, yeah, adjusting your caseload, not taking on as many clients. Cause now you're going to have some more admin leadership training, supervision, those types of things. Uh, readjusting your schedule to some extent, knowing that you're going to be taking on a handful of different tasks. And now is also a really great time to look at outsourcing some of the things that you just really don't like doing. So you have some extra time to be able to support your new hire. Yeah. And I want to hold space for all of this is easy to say to actually execute is fucking hard because a lot of us can't take a pay cut and we have to kind of navigate that full caseload while trying to hire your first person for a while. And also hiring people is expensive and you will get the return on investment once, especially if you're an insurance provider, once payments start coming through, but there's a lot that you have to pay up front. So it's possible someone couldn't even do both of those things at the same time of hire somebody to do clinical work as well as an admin, like that might stretch them to where they can't take care of themselves. And so I, it's a hard, it's a totally valid fear and setback that people have in embrace, embracing group practice. But it, my experience with working over 30 group practices at this point is when people are ready to take action, they, they make it happen. The fourth hesitation is nervousness about having a steady referral stream. And making sure that they have enough referrals in order to uh, fill up their new clinician that's working for them. And this is something that I have worked with clinicians on quite a bit. Um, The marketing piece of this, which is I work with them whenever they're a solo practice and they're ready to expand to a group practice. And they're like, I need to readjust my whole website. And that is so true. You do need to make tweaks to your website because chances are when you were a solo practice, 
you, uh, a lot of the website was about you, your values, the services you offer, your approach, and you are now having to shift it and find those alignment and values and highlight those that all the team members hold while also having a spot to highlight you as the now owner of this group practice and any other team member that comes on. Because as we know, in the eating disorder space, most of your clients are either going to come from a referral source, or if you take insurance from insurance, um, or as you get bigger in Hannah's case, which we did a whole episode on this, Google analytics, SEO, Google ads, that whole thing too. But most people are coming from referrals. And so having those one-on-one relationships with clinicians, letting people know who you're bringing on, why you're bringing them on, hyping them up, because that can be an adjustment for providers who are used to just referring to you now referring to the practice instead of just you. Yeah. And that wording totally matters. We just got an inquiry to the practice this week. I haven't taken on a new client in almost three years at this point. And we still got a referral that said they're specifically asking for me because their therapist said my name. And I had no idea who this therapist was either. I was very confused. Um, but we still get those even three years later, as we've been established as nourish Colorado, that it can still happen. I, (laughs) this is one of my favorite things to talk about because I'm a group practice. We have 10 clinicians. Now I shit myself every single time we hire somebody. And I think, how the fuck am I going to keep topping my team up and fill up this person? Holy shit. Guess what? Every time. And it's not without struggle. And so the most important thing is to set expectations with your team. Um, We say that people are typically filled up in three to six months. Sometimes that plus or minus because of clinician skill set or, you know, clients coming through the practice at that time. I know right now we're kind of in a slower season and I've heard this across the board from people in insurance changes with the new year and people having to hit their deductibles. And then also we're entering a recession. So yeah, there will be flux in your referrals and people coming to your practice. And how can you be taking action to make sure those referrals are still coming in? Because the reality is there is billions of people in the world. You need probably about 30 clients for a clinician as far as weekly, every other week. And that math is pretty clear that 30 is quote unquote nothing when also so many people struggle with eating disorders and need our help. And that gets way easier when you're an insurance provider as well. The fifth hesitation that we are going to address is what happens if a clinician wants to leave after I hire them? And you are an expert in this. And I love how you've approached this. So passing the mic over to you, Han. I have been through so much with this. I've transformed a lot because if you asked me in the beginning of my practice, I, my first person that left, I was so fucking resentful and I didn't handle it the way that I would want to. I don't think I was a complete asshole, but I wasn't as understanding and kind and accepting as far as radical acceptance of the situation as I would be now. Um, Starting with the interview process with people, I always ask them, do you want to have your own practice? And I get to the human level with them of, I get it. I want to be the entrepreneur. I want to be the boss. That's why I have a group practice. If you want any ounce of that, you taking this job is going to make you so resentful. So please go build a group practice or 
a private practice if that's what you want. And I've had people be like, wow, thank you for saying that. I actually am going to do my own thing. And then I've had other people be like, no, please hire me. I don't want this. And I've had people close their own private practice to join mine because private practice is all shiny for people. It's fucking hard. And you have to really want to do the business side. A lot of people don't, they want to be a clinician. So I strive to hire those people because it's a mutually beneficial ecosystem. I can provide you with the clients and a great work experience. And you see the clients and don't have to touch any of that and go can go home at the end of the day and, you know, dust your hands. I love that. And I love that you were so transparent about that, like during the interview process, because I think it's, I think it can be so hard. And I, and I think there's also too, and, and, you know, you and I have kind of talked about this where if you really love supervision and training new uh, clinicians and things like that, and you know that they're want to open their own group practice and you just want to have like a small, a small part of influencing them and, and helping them. Like that is also an option. If you're like, yeah, Hey, come work with me for a year. And like, I will introduce you to the community and show you the ropes and things like that. As long as there is mutual understanding that like that person does want to go off and have their own practice. And like you are teaching them in order to support them and not have the wool pulled over your eyes. I think that's how contractor model could work mm-hmm. for people hiring is it's a short-term contract. It's a year you're getting somebody's business set up for them. So you're really doing that hybrid business coaching and supervision, and then you're releasing them into the wild. Yeah. I've, I've seen that play out a couple of times and it's been really awesome where it's, where it's been like someone is, is in a full-time job at either a treatment center or a hospital or community. And they were like, I want more flexibility. I want more freedom. I'm burnt out from higher level of care. And uh, I've seen clinicians be like, Hey, come work for me for a year. Like I have a wait list, take on this wait list. You're supporting me and doing that work. And it's essentially like kind of helping you have an out. Uh, in order to like start the private practice without that like terrifying jump of having to work a full-time job and start a private practice on the side, essentially working 60 plus hours a week. And, and that is a surefire way to burn out. And that's such a reality that most people go through as they're people do it from yeah. higher level of care clinical into their own group practice or into their own private practice. Yeah, exactly. I think often about my team, I'd say we're considered a medium to large group practice. Now, once we finish quote unquote hiring and growing, which who knows when that'll be, I say 14, but if there's a need, we might meet it. I think about if people want to leave, I want them to leave and how, if it's not a good fit for them, they shouldn't be here because everybody's just going to be miserable. And it's almost like it's only a good opportunity if it's what you want working for a group practice. Oh, and PS people are going to leave. People are going to leave your group practice. You're going to leave your group practice one day. And how can you protect yourself in a sense for us? We're always hiring. So kind of buffering if some, someone were to leave and how do you treat people so well and make it so sweet that they stay? Because I know my team sees me bust ass for them and appreciates all the things I provide for them. And in some ways, I think that deters them from wanting their own practice because they see how hard it is and how sweet they have it. So I, I think having a group practice is an awesome opportunity for people to be in private practice 
and get the flexibility side without having to run the group and still be really fulfilled and probably make more money than they did at a treatment center, which I know is true for some of my team. Yeah. And then we're going to throw in a really quick little bonus one because I was shocked that this came up so much. And so many people felt, felt this fear and that's the process of changing from a solo MPI, which is a national provider identification number to a group MPI. And rumor has it, it's not actually that hard. It was so random to hear this. And it made me giggle a little bit because literally all you have to do is apply for an NPI too. And I wonder if the more scary thing is dealing with it as far as updating insurance contracts, becoming a group contract. It's like, this is a small piece of a bigger fear. Mm. And so I just want to normalize like that process is kind of annoying as far as making sure your contracts reflect that you're a group and you can bill for your clinicians underneath and you will still use your solo NPI as well, but it's definitely doable. Other people have done it before you, you will get it done. Thanks for listening to the weight inclusive innovators podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the pod on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please leave us a rating and review, share with a business bestie, and check out our website at weightinclusiveinnovators.com. See you next week. Bye.